The Psychedologist. From Allen Ginsberg's The Avant-Garde, 1968. What is called the hippie movement involves an alteration of consciousness towards some kind of greater awareness and greater individuality. Hopefully, the future will see a spread of that gentleness and consideration, poetically and artistically. Hello, listeners. So glad you could tune in. Welcome to the first episode, formal episode of The Psychedologist. In this interview and in this episode, we will go back in history to the time when so-called hippies were dreaming of a future free of wars and violence and filled with love and music and self-expression. I'm talking about the counterculture movement in the 1960s, and in this interview, we focus more specifically through the marais of the Grateful Dead and how their music still influences a revolution or a shared spirituality, or even, some might say, a religion. I've been out on the West Coast this month, spent a few days in San Francisco, and now I'm up at my friend's land in Northern California. It's beautiful here. You may be aware of the gentle buzz of chainsaws and generators in the background. They're doing some work cultivating this land right now, and it is great to be here. It's like being in another country, actually. I feel that the California culture is significantly different from um, where I'm from, in, in New England or on the East Coast, at least. I've learned a lot, and a lot's been shared with me, and I'm grateful for that. So on my time out here, I've gotten to know a lot more about the historical significance of the Summer of Love. And I think it's important to know about, uh, especially now as we face some of the same issues, um, but just wearing new hats. Like the anti-war movement um, was really burgeoned by the Summer of Love and the gathering of 100,000 different folks at Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco 50 years ago. This is where feminism, gay liberation, New Age spirituality, and environmentalism were either born or gained a lot of momentum and grew into something greater, the movements that we know today. I was also blessed this year to learn about San Francisco's history and the history of the hippie movement, basically, when I went to the Women's Visionary Council at Psychedelic Science. And uh, in the first part of the day, just basically heard amazing stories from who I would call my elders, the, the women from the generation before who... Uh, we're taking LSD and plant sacraments and going out into nature and experiencing harmony, developing communities that were self-sustaining or taking it upon themselves to bear their children naturally, um, relying on themselves and relying on the earth to support them. Wow, some radical stuff. Very far out. These people basically escaping the propaganda about how to exist or how to have a family. The same kind of challenges I feel myself facing and perhaps that resonate with some of you as well. So during my time in the city, I went to the de Young Museum in San Francisco in Golden Gate Park, and I saw a lot of artifacts from the hippie culture. Um, Among those, information about the appropriation of other cultures through song and and fashions and posters and um, the the spawn of things like community health centers, because so many people came so quickly that the infrastructure of Haight-Ashbury and the Bay in general couldn't support this amount of hippies in the street. So uh, a lot of things sprung up and cooperative uh, establishments, some of which still exist today, spawned in that summer. So these people pioneered a lot of things. And some of them we discuss on this episode between myself and a fellow podcaster, my comrade Chris DiLoretto, also known as the Wizard of Monadnock. 
So on the show, we start off talking about what the podcast journey is like, especially with the gamut of mind-body topics I intend to range on. We touch on the Grateful Dead and eventually the topic of ritual and ceremony, initially in application to attending a Dead & Co. concert and DiLoretto's experience with that as a type of intentional sacred ritual. On my end, in terms of the dead, I knew it was considered holy or at least deeply influential to a lot of folks, so I thought I gave the culture an honest try at Jerry Jam this year. The experience came up short of other mystical times I've had, even just times at concerts. Mm. But Chris told me I ought to hold out and not call it quits till I've at least seen Dark Star Orchestra or Dead & Co. So I tabled it. Stay tuned for what actually happened after the interview. So we discuss other rituals as well, and um, we conclude the episode by dedicating it to the folks who've been swept up and entangled in the war on consciousness, as Graham Hancock has called it, or more commonly referred to as the drug war. At the time of this recording, I was quite affected by the aftermath of a festival I attended in um, the New York area. Hugely influential, transformative festival. I, I left so charged up with new ideas for um, resolving conflict, being a more peaceful and connected person, and uh, contributing more to my community. I felt healthy and well, and um, was sad to learn that some folks who were doing amazing things at that festival were swept up in this uh, rather um, nonsensical drug raid that happened just uh, trying to get two folks who were going from festival to festival peddling drugs and were known to be doing that and, you know, were probably not safe. The police took it upon themselves to do a secret operation that even some uh, innocent folks were swept up in. So I was pretty affected by that at the time of this interview. And um, it reminded me of the importance for community collaboration between the public and law enforcement. Uh, this particular festival is very close with um, the community there. They've developed relationships and built trust with the landowner, the council of the town, health department, fire marshal. And above all that, the culture of this group um, is not subsumed by drug use at any rate. Rather, they're about expressive art, culture, <clears throat> music, education, holistic healing, community building. So in the wake of that event, it seems appropriate to draw attention to the fact that uh, although the First Amendment permits me um, legal right to talk about this content, there should be no claims by myself or my guest or anyone affiliated with the psychologist that are taken as facilitation or condoning of illegal activity of any kind. And any stories shared here are theoretical in nature. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Chris, Chris Loretto, organizer, writer, and mystic. As the Wizard of Monadnock, he hosts a monthly podcast on the meaning of life and seeks ways to foster human survival by re-enchanting the world. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you like hearing about these things, you might consider coming to Boston Entheogenic Network's A Trip to the Past, Boston's Psychedelic History event in September. That's September 15th to 17th. Check your calendars. We have events every day ranging from entheogenic trips and tales, which are true stories of healing in altered states, kind of like an open mic storytelling event. Great to be an audience member. Great to contribute. It's always weird. It's always funny. It's always gut-wrenching. 
terrifying, hilarious, and brings everybody together. There's a book talk by two authors. There's a walking tour. Uh, we've got speakers on Sunday and a panel, audience question and answers. Check it out, eventbrite.com. I'll put the link in the show notes, but you can search A Trip to the Past on Facebook as well for the event invite. Here he is, Chris DiLoretto on The Psychedologist. Chris, welcome to The Psychedologist. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I don't still know what it means to be here. Well, that's what we're here to figure out, right? Here we are. <laughs> yeah, this is the first interview that um, I'm hosting, and that's good because I really like being on this end a bit more. It's less of a hot seat. It's Yeah, and you know what? This is my first time being on this end, so this is very exciting. Wow. And how does it feel for you? I'm stoked, actually. In fact, I feel like it's uh, less pressure on me because I don't have to do anything with this afterwards. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, thanks for coming down. Um, I... I was really honored when you invited me to your show. It was an honor to have you. It was like uh, probably the best show we've had, I think. But you say that about every show. I do, and I mean it each time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I enjoyed um, your show about the you going to see the dead, and uh, I listened to it on my way to Jerry Jam, actually, up in Bath, New Hampshire. Appropriate time. Yeah, yeah, it was good, and I've I've heard dead songs. The Grateful Dead is what we're speaking of. Um, but I'd never really dug the groove. And I think it's the kind of thing you have to hear live. Mm -hmm. It definitely is. Yeah. Um, it, it Even for me, I mean, like I, I liked certain Grateful Dead songs at like 15 or 16, you know, I wouldn't say that I got into the band like I am today until 25, between 25 and 30. Like it took that long, like a decade or so for me, for something to actually click inside my head to the point where now it's it's practically like a religious thing. Wow. Was there um, another band or art form or belief that you had this relationship to before the dead? Not really, you know. I mean, there was, um, I, I had, especially in, in college, cliche as it sounds actually in retrospect, I had um, a similar affinity for like Pink Floyd, you know, um, that I... No slur on Pink Floyd. I still like Pink Floyd, but I do feel like I've outgrown a little bit of, like, say, like Roger Waters' lyricism. Um, it's it seems very simplistic to me now. Um, again, not that I don't listen to it or I've moved away, but it doesn't it doesn't get me in the same way that Robert Hunter's lyricism does today. I mean, he was, of course, um, Jerry Garcia's lyricist um, for the Grateful Dead. He was the the non performing member of the band. So there was someone who just wrote lyrics for them. It, two people actually. Uh, Bob Weir had another lyricist named um, and he's really famous and involved in like internet activism. Oh, uh, John Perry Barlow. Um, he founded like the Electronic Freedom Foundation or something EFF if you've ever seen that anywhere. No. Um, and I didn't know any of those people's names, except Bob Weir. I've heard yeah, that before. Yes. Um, so he wrote Bobby's songs and Robert Hunter wrote all of Jerry's songs. Um, and he's still alive as well. They're both still alive. Uh, but Hunter is, he's very much of a, a kind of a, a prophetic sort of dude. He's, he's sort of reclusive. Um, he did do a brief tour, I think, in 2014 or 2015. Uh, he's getting up there in age. I think he's like 80. Um, but he is in the, um, for reference, like in the recent Grateful Dead documentary on Amazon that came out, it's like a... It's a six-part, four-hour documentary. It's pretty good. Um, 24 hours? 
No, no, six parts. Um, in total, it's four over oh, okay. over the six parts. It's four hours. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't put anything past you, dead fans. No, it, we could we could fill twenty four hours. Definitely, definitely. In fact, most hardcore fans. That's kind of the comment was that it did not go deep enough um, in the in the four hours. Um, but so he's so reclusive that like there's there's this part in the fifth episode where everyone is telling the filmmaker like you're not going to get Hunter like he's not going to talk to you you know like they're you just can't there's no chance you know and so they they show all these people saying this you know and then they show him in the car with Bob Weir going to a Robert Hunter show and this tour that he did a couple of years ago and they're like on their way there and of course Bobby's going to bring him backstage and stuff and like Bobby Bobby's driving he turns to him he's like hey he knows we're coming right and the filmmaker's like uh, no. <laughs> And so they get him um, after the show, right? And he answers one question for the entire documentary. And it's the greatest moment in the entire documentary. And I wish I had, um, actually, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to get out the lyrics to the song Dark Star. Because they, the, the question happens off screen, but they must have asked him, like, what do the lyrics of Dark Star mean? And that was something that Bobby and his wife were, like, bantering about in the car. You know, he's like, why do people want to know what songs mean? You know, and his wife's kind of like, well, you know, I mean, for me, like, I, I kind of like the connection to the artist and, like, hearing what it meant. And he's sort of like, huh, I never thought of it. This guy who's been an artist for 50 years, you know what I mean? His wife is telling him um, something he hadn't heard well, that's like some people like to know the biography of anyone who they idolize or that's who they right. learn from and or, you know, the story behind a, a work of art and others are just um, are interested in what it evokes for them. And that that's purely their relationship to that art. Exactly. And and I, I think I can see it both ways, you know. And one thing that I found with lyrics and stuff is when I was much younger, I very much wanted to know, like, what's the correct answer? Like, what is this song about? Mm. in stone like what is the the right answer sounds you know? like you were a good public student yeah school, exactly. industrialized <laughs> life preparation i think you're absolutely right and you know now it, it's i've let that go completely and a song can be to me i'm perfectly comfortable saying that it is something to me that it, it is not for the creator and it is not for someone else but i still like to sometimes get that insight especially from somebody like a robert hunter whose lyrics and poetry in fact to me like this is a guy for example that like when Bob Dylan can't come up with lyrics for an album, he has Robert Hunter write his lyrics for him. There's a couple of Dylan albums that are, you know, feature lyrics by Bob Hunter, you know. Um, this is He's a, a deep, deep guy who was very, very, like he goes back with the dead, uh, before the dead, in fact. Him and Jerry played in bands together um, before then. So he was like Ken Kesey, a um a research psychedelic like he signed up for some psychedelic experimentation in the early 60s in the very early days so this is a guy who is deep deep in psychedelic history um he's a very important figure even though he doesn't get mentioned very much was he one of the people that got given like 2200 micrograms of lsd and then put in the woods um something along those lines yes and also when you um if you have if you've ever indulged in some like acid legends online like about things like the thumbprint and like who has taken the highest doses of lsd ever and things like that people actually say that they believe that robert hunter is one of the people who has taken the highest doses ever at one point he supposedly took like half a gram or something completely mind-blowing like that. So this is a guy who's who's way out there. But th so he appears on screen and this is the song is called Dark Star and it's it's you know it's a famous Grateful Dead song. Um 
And they must have asked him off camera, like, what do the lyrics of Dark Star mean? And this is his response. He recites his own lyrics. He says, Dark Star crashes, pouring its light into ashes. Reason tatters. The forces tear loose from the axis. Searchlight casting for faults in the clouds of delusion. Shall we go, you and I, while we can, through the transitive nightfall of diamonds? Why do people ask me what that song means? It means what it says. <laughs> and that's all he says in the whole documentary. I thought that was the great, I, I just laughed my ass off when I said, it means what it says. Like, it, the, the, how could I be more clear? Um, and that, that's, that's the sort of guy that he is. And to me, that is actually how I've come to experience his lyrics, very much so, is um, in a lot of ways, like, don't think about them too hard and you will know exactly what they mean. Yeah, I, thinking is a thing that gets very different in altered states of consciousness. And when we're experiencing music in a deep way, um, I was just thinking, are those diamonds, would you say the same sorts of diamonds in like Lucy in the Sky with diamonds? Great question. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. And what are those diamonds? Um, they are fractal in nature, I believe. Uh -huh. Um, I would definitely use use that word mm -hmm. for it. And um, yeah, the transitive, when, when I hear transitive nightfall of diamonds, I, I do kind of see diamonds in the sky. Um, what are they? I mean, I would say that potentially they are um, among the things that are part of the broader reality that we don't necessarily always have access to. And a lot of things, in, I mean, now his songs range from like very like, Western narrative story tunes to highly abstract psychedelic things. They and 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 you, I mean, he makes references to everything from Shakespeare to like 16th century ballads, like in his songs that like scholars have poured through to recognize the allusions he's making in these songs. So they they range wildly, um, but that's um there's a lot of that in there though there's a lot of things that i think make sense on multiple levels and they will make sense to people who have sort of seen other aspects of reality or experienced them um it, in fact they'll make very uh clear sense in yeah. some cases to to people who have had that experience that they won't necessarily to others but at the same time the songs are good enough though that even if you haven't had that experience you can enjoy it on a different level mhm mm mhm mm yeah, it, it makes me think about a walk in the woods I had with my friend Lev about a month ago, where um, I had said earlier that day, it, it's very psychedelic. And and then he said something later. And I, I again, I said, mm -hmm, yeah, what a psychedelic person. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he's like, so let me ask you something like, is that water psychedelic? Because what is psychedelic? And, right. you know, you say the some of their songs are about, uh, would you say, Western sort mm -hmm. of, or, or like I, I even heard a lot of like kind of good times lyrics at mm -hmm. Jerry Jam, um, just about being with friends. And, oh, sure. and that can be really psychedelic, too. Absolutely. It's like, as we, you know, we spoke earlier when you arrived about this psychedelic renaissance and how that shifts things on all fronts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering how the implications or are the um, associations with that term will change what did it used to mean to people and well what a word means is really how how it's uh, how we accept what what definition we accept for it most mm -hmm. widely but then everyone has their like art and music everyone has their own interpretation of it absolutely well and remind me what is the um what is the root of psychedelic like what is the um 
Do you remember? It's like mind manifesting. So, yes, yes, mind manifesting. Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, that can really apply to a lot of things. Oh yeah, yeah. If you have any sensory perception whatsoever, then the mind's being manifested. Yep. Huh. I'm glad you mentioned fractals when you're talking about diamonds. I went to this great talk over the weekend um, called The Fractal Nature of Conflict. And what um, the presenter, Duncan Autry was his name, he gave an unbelievable um, overview of the rules and what makes a fractal and how fractals and conflict actually have everything in common. And we can use this awareness to resolve conflict and see conflict as an opportunity rather than an impasse. Um, and I just pulled out my notes here. I learned a fractal is an infinitely complex system that is self-similar at all scales and is created by a recursive algorithm. I feel like that might, those rules might even apply to some music, like even dead music or jam bands, right? By the way, we're not sure what the psychedologist really is, but clearly it's so far Jam bands, psychedelics, <laughs> culture, music festivals. Very and- similar with my own podcast where it's, you know, it started off as one thing and then it has slowly over time kind of like zigzagged around. And, you know, is it even fully formed at this point? I don't know. I've been talking about the Grateful Dead a lot more, mm-hmm. um, but it, would I consider it a Grateful Dead podcast? No, not really. You know, so yeah, I, I would say that in general when it comes to, you know, a podcast like this where you're going to touch on psychedelics and spirituality and the nature of existence. I mean, you can go in so many different directions with this. So that's what's kind of fun about it, actually. It's a blank slate. You can do whatever you want with it. I'm looking forward to it. It, In some ways, it reminds me of feelings I had as a child of um, that my journal writings would one day be a book because they seemed so important and profound. You really? I think anybody yes. with an ego was. Yes, I know. <laughs> anybody with an ego writing a journal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe more so people high in extroversion because people mm-hmm. some people would just die with, you know, uh, be mortified at the thought of someone reading their journal. But um I was, you know, actually um Milady found her childhood journal and we were flipping through it. Um, and the way that she wrote was so different than when we, I found mine and then I brought mine a few months later, we're reading mine and it was so dramatic. And I remember reading it with the idea that one day someone else might read it. Mm-hmm. And I think it almost played up some of the drama or like the self victimization of that. Cause I, you know, looking back the way I had, uh, purported some situations now in my memory, I'm like, Oh, it wasn't quite that way that I was like, <laughs> not at fault at all. You know, that happens to me these days uh, in in a modern context with Facebook memories. I'll see Facebook posts I made um, 10 years ago. And (laughs) I I will literally comment on my own post being like, shut up, dude. (laughs) That's a stupid thing to say. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy, those old posts. And and, and it's like the culture of what's okay to share, how you share things on the internet has totally changed. Oh, it's evolved dramatically. Yeah. Remember it used to say... I don't even know what does it say on the wall now when you're going to post something it says oh, it just says like tell you tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what's on your but mind. But before oh, okay. it said it said your name and it said like is or yeah, you know Yay. what I mean? Like so I have a lot of posts like that where it only makes sense if you say Christopher JD Loretto is something oh. something something like It's kind of psychodynamic in a way. Like oh, sure. Freudian. Absolutely. Or uh what are you feeling? I think it said that at one point. I think you're right. Yeah. And it's it is still an option to put in your feelings. Right, is you know, feeling. Select a feeling. Mm. Yeah. 
I think that it's fascinating how our um, psychology plays out on Facebook. And and so this podcast, this is media, right? Mm-hmm. This is like oh, yeah. audio media. Hell yeah. Yeah. So how, how people and how I will use this for, um, for sharing my thoughts, but also for working things out in, in words sometimes with people or not. And um, I think I, I see people searching for some sort of emotional catharsis and making posts and totally and sharing their story, you know, or their pictures. And I haven't gotten into Instagram. I don't know if that indicates I'm less visual, but I, I do prefer words when expressing myself. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that one intention in the podcast is to, is to introduce conversations and ideas in in the way that they've been introduced to me through listening to podcasts in like what would otherwise be idle moments, driving Mm -hmm. or walking or whatever. Um, I went for a run and had this like flood of ideas. And when, when I was figuring out how to use the microphone and everything, I actually like turned around and ran home and I was like, I'm going to plug in the mic and just talk about what I was just thinking. <laughs> That's awesome. And, yeah. And, and if it's good, then, you know, put it on. Do you ever do that? You like record something and yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And in some cases there, I mean, there have been whole episodes that I've made that are more or less along those lines. And in some cases, they have been favorites of of others. You know, so sometimes it's like the the ones that I, I put a ton of effort into, and maybe there's a guest, and there's all this stuff like people like. And then there's one where it's just me, like rambling off the top of my head for forty minutes, or like masturbating to Nick Sand at the beginning of my exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people people eat it up. They, I mean, they they really like it. So it, I think it depends, especially if you're speaking honestly, you know, and you do you are expressing these thoughts that you have. Um, that you, I mean, I think that if, if you're a particularly conscious person and you kind of, you listen to a lot of these podcasts and you explore these, you know, whether it's psychedelic or artistic or even psychological worlds, you get a pretty good sense of what might be interesting for other people to, to hear about, you know? And so if you kind of have that in the back of your head and you just let yourself go to talk, um, it, it it oftentimes is effective. It, it oftentimes people do receive it very well. Mm. Yeah, I this, I did two interviews, one with you and one on psychedelics today, mm-hmm. and oh, that was um, a good show. They 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 had a better interview with you than I did. I think. Oh well, they, they're a little they bit different. more professional than I am. <laughs> well, also during our interview, I was like driving. Oh yeah, no, 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 it wasn't you. I think it was. I think it was me. You know, no, it was just me. Like those, those guys are just. They just know what they're doing a little bit more than I do. I think they sure do know what they're doing. Um, They're gonna think that I want a favor from them or something because (laughs) I just keep praising these guys everywhere I go. But they really are great. So check out psychedelics today, everybody. (laughs) They actually let's plug them. They have a psych. Well, it'll actually be over by the time this airs, but they do courses um, for learning about navigating the psychedelic realms and being safe and. Oh God, it's a good time to check in with uh, if your non-ordinary states are uh, serving you to the nth degree that they can. And, and also if you're protecting yourself in those ways. So everybody gets safe. Psychedelics today is a great way to do it. And, um, you know, Chris needs a place to stay in, you know, Colorado or uh, yeah. New Jersey or at any time. Just maybe... Actually, they won't hear this until it's too late, but I do want a favor from them. I want a break on that the 
Oh, yeah, you want a discount. Yes. Yes. Uh, We'll we'll talk, guys. We'll talk. (laughs) Um, I I was wondering if you ever, um, if you ever, in, in making your podcast, do you find that you say things that later on you want to like change or no um no i don't in fact um i oftentimes say things that i wanted to say and afterwards i'm glad i said them but like outside the context of recording a podcast i may not have said and i I may have declined to say um, whereas I don't know something about the microphone, I just start confessing things into, and um, so far I have not regretted anything. I mean, there's plenty of things, and I actually will say this in the moment while I'm recording these things, where the sentiment that I'm expressing may be seen as at odds with the prevailing opinions of my political crowd, mm-hmm. um, which uh, most of my work is very political, and is. Um, is different than what I do on the Wizard of Monadnock podcast. Um, so occasionally I have some unorthodox views about things, you know, like say, for example, the fact that like, you know, I kind of think that like the survival of the race or like the um, overcoming the challenges of our time, which are, are of course structural and are of course related to capitalism. Um, but I, I question strict materialism, which is a big no-no for a socialist. Um, and so I always say this, I'm like, if any of my political friends are listening to this, they're going to hate it, <laughs> but it is what I think, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't like being dis. I'm not, I'm not a good, um, I'm not good at pretending to be anything. It's certainly not in the long term anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, that, that's, I guess, why I don't regret these things. You know, they, they may, in some cases, have consequences for me, like side-eye from some political comrades in some cases, but I don't care um side eye yeah (laughs) well i okay that's that's really great i think it's it indicates a level of confidence in yourself and in your perspectives um that i'm hoping to get to myself um after those two interviews i went into two very similar like states of depression and mania and doubt yeah yeah just um and i it actually it was one piece of a puzzle that um, is almost fully come together. I, I have no doubt there are other parts of it that I'll include or, or that will um, show themselves to me later. But um, in my spiritual emergence course um, with Emma Bragdon, she, um, after spending the weekend with me, said that I had a shamanic quality and a quality of being a shapeshifter. I'd never heard that. Yeah. Interesting. And I, I had been trained in dance. My, I danced my whole life. And yeah. I love making shapes with my body and um, like enacting my emotions or what I'm seeing or hearing in the form of movement. So shifting shape physically, literally, um, yeah, sure. But she said, no, it's like I can take on a different persona, a different, yeah, vibrational uh, presence. And and then, yeah, after feeling very um, conscious of what I'd said after being interviewed by you, and then the very same after Kyle interviewed me, what I came to realize is that uh, when I talk to a person, I am, you said you, did you say you can't play a role? You just. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I should quantify that or qualify that, I guess, by saying I play roles all the time, you know, but when it comes to actually like saying what I think though, 
it comes out, you know, like the truth, you know what I mean? Like I, like I play a role at work, you know what I mean? And granted, they all know that I'm a communist and they all know, you know what I mean? There's no. <laughs> now every one of the listeners knows that you're a communist. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's very commonly known in my workplace that I'm the workplace communist, you know, but I still have to play a certain professional role in terms of doing the job that I do and whatnot. You know, it's like, um, well, one thing we talked about in the integration session that day, I mentioned Joseph Campbell, you know, and he used to talk about how people like you put on masks and, and not in a negative way. Like there's a positive role for masks. Like, you know, a judge, for example, when a judge is wearing his robes or her robes behind the bench, that judge is wearing a judge mask and that judge is going to behave like a judge. Or you they know? look like a wizard. Exactly. Or they look like a wizard, you know? And when they go home though and they eat with their family, they shouldn't have the same mask on, you know? And that these are appropriate masks, you know? Mm-hmm. So I can do that. I can, I can wear the appropriate mask. I can wear... I can sort of wear the dad mask. I'm, a, I'm an odd dad. You know what I mean? Like, I'm definitely not like a, a normal dad. But um, I, there's still a certain side of me that is the dad face. You know what I mean? And um, But when it really comes down to it, like, if I'm, if I'm talking to people, you know, um, yeah, I mean, there, I, I cannot, especially if we're going to talk about matters of, like, life and, like, the spirit and whatnot, I cannot play roles as far as that goes. I What I feel and what I truly think will come out. I will say it. Sure, sure. Yeah, me, me too. I, I don't lie. I used to lie. Mm-hmm. Um, white lies. Didn't know why I would. I think this resonates with a lot of people, actually. Definitely. definitely. And then when I started... Um, studying Buddhism, I didn't, I did not make a concerted effort not to lie, but mm-hmm. I, it just stopped happening. Sure. And then like, I even would just pick up in um, doing stuff. I just different activities I used to do years ago. And I'd be like, whoa, it's different to do this when you don't lie yes, like, at is. all. Yes, yes, very much so. <laughs> um, uh, oh, so much that could go on, but okay. Okay. So with the roles, the masks, etc. cetera, um, I, I, I do have trouble not being myself and that, that precludes me from a lot of jobs, by the way. That's like, yeah. that's why I'm a contract oh, t- worker. Totally. Yeah. But, um, it will, but in conversation, I, I think that I've taken comfort in the fact that I can craft my words, my tone, my facial expressions, et cetera, to suit, you know, what like feedback I'm getting from the person I'm speaking Absolutely. with. Absolutely. And that's totally appropriate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I would well, say I do the same thing. Yeah. It's in part to make them feel comfortable or like, you know, all the good things that I want a Consideration person to feel. Consideration for other humans. You yeah. Know? yeah. 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 I'm nice. It's part of uh, being a, a social creature, really, mm-hmm. you know? And it does bring out something different in the other person if you can make them feel comfortable or mm-hmm. seen. Um, and in talking about opinions, like I, you know, someone who really shares my opinions and we're, we're going at it about some small detail of, you know, some hippie thing uh, versus, you know, this, the other morning at coffee, I was talking with my 94 year old grandmother about um, how I don't think that Jesus is God, but mm-hmm. I do think that she is God. I think that we're all God and, sure. and yep. we're born perfect and other stuff gets in the way. And so it's like, I have to talk about that. Um, it's, it's just we are so much further away in terms of sharing the same opinion, but I speak about it with the same sort of um, validation of her perspective. Totally. Yeah. And that was to talk on her level. Yeah. 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 On her level. And um, yeah, t- exactly. So after I recorded the podcast episodes though, I was um, unconsciously v- very self-conscious. <laughs> Can you be unconsciously self-conscious? I think so. 
Okay. I felt unconscious uh, resistance to the idea that many people might listen to what I'd said and I couldn't craft it into, you know, what would be like the appropriate package for them to hear oh, it and, and yeah, to not sure, judge me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Except I think that, <laughs> see, this is why I really loved both of your interviews and, and why I say in truth that it is one of the best shows that I've had though, because you do speak with a very professional confidence. Um, about these subjects, you know, you have not just experience, but education and, um, you know, the um, experience that goes beyond just yourself, you know, you have experience with other people, you have experience in other countries and things like that. And so when you speak on a podcast, both mine and psychedelics today, you reminded me of like a guest that Duncan Trussell would have, like a, you reminded me of a guest that someone else who has what I would consider a real podcast <laughs> would have on as a guest, you know? And so that's why like, when you said that you were, you know, feeling so doubtful about it, I was like, why? I was like, you sounded so good. Like, you know, like you sounded like an, an authority on, on a subject, you know, which I think you are. Mm. Um, but you do sound like that just for the record. That's how I used to sell the most cheesecakes at the Cheesecake Factory. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Being the Cheesecake Authority? <laughs> yes, yes, I was. I absolutely was. That's awesome. I remember exactly my spiel. That's what I would call it. Yep. Um, well, first of all, you're not supposed to ask if anyone wants dessert. You come with the menu presented open to the dessert menu and you place it into their lap, mm -hmm. preferably into their hands. Um, look, 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 look. Yeah, and then, and then they're like waving no, but they hold their hand up, so you put it in their hand. And then a lot of the time, people that would say no would actually order cheesecake. And this time in my life is what I would consider a place where I was using my power, if you will, mm -hmm. for evil, <laughs> for bad. Because <laughs> I, I did. I pushed it. Oh, um, uh, I don't we, know. I, I don't know if giving people cheesecakes is evil. Well, for me, f for the beliefs I have now, it's like it goes against do not harm. You really? Think? Yeah, because the calorie count on the meals oh. there is like over your daily. But think recommended. about the enjoyment, though. Think about the you know the, the their quality of life went up. <laughs> while they were eating that cheese. Did it? Cake. Well, so did their blood lipids. And yeah, oh, totally. But this is, see, this is an argument that I, I think I, I have with people quite frequently is that I think that things that are not necessarily healthy in the long term can be argued to be beneficial from a quality of life perspective. Sure, you know? sure. Like, like maybe if somebody really loves sugar, I think they should have it. I mean, we only have one life to live. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, eat, have some sugar. Yeah. You know, it's cool. I mean, like, these are these are small things. I mean, like, it's hard. For, it's just hard. Like, with all the real evil that's out there, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to consider getting people their cheesecake, which they loved. You know what I mean? They enjoyed. It. You know, like, they're going to think about that. I mean, if they remember the cheesecake, you know what I mean? But, like, they're going to think about that time that they went out with their family or whatever and that they had and this And they got really, really full. Yeah. And then they had this wicked sweet dessert and they were like, I really didn't need that, but it was awesome. And I think there's something to be said about that. It doesn't need to be evil anyways, if, if anything, morally ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure, sure. And I'm sure that I can probably pick up on this conversation with um, my friend Byron at some point because we worked together for a long time and he's moved on to another restaurant. Yeah, this is another thing of podcasts. You have to make sure your friends are okay with being talked about. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I feel that my time at the Cheesecake Factory had a lot of foreshadowing in some ways of, of issues that I deal, you know, that I grapple with now about, you know, how do I, what is ethical sure. and moral and stuff like that. But no, you're right. I wonder if any of my former guests were ever, or whoever waited on are listening. I worked there for six years. Yeah. Well, if nothing else, I'm sure there's people who are listening who are like, yeah, I had a cheesecake once <laughs> that, that I really didn't need. And it was awesome. <laughs> I don't regret it at all. <sighs> 
Well, let's let's shift to talking about ceremony and ritual. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. I um did a little ceremony today. I lit a little bit of incense mm-hmm. and then I cleaned some hen of the woods, some chicken of the woods mushrooms that I had foraged. Nice. Yeah, I picked the leaves off and washed it and uh, tried to be present with um with my food and when I when I took it, when I took the blades from the ground, I um sort tried to ask permission um before because i've learned that that's a nice thing to do yeah it is forage food and i left some behind for others or for the you know earth to take back that's cool so yeah just a little ritual that um came to me but what what's ritual for you oh well ritual ritual is is many many different things and you know ritual ranges from you know very secular habits almost um to more formalized, like, you know, ceremonial type things. Um, you know, for me, I mean, I, I tend to be generally, despite the fact that I will praise ritual and ceremony all the time, I'm also at the same time something of a heretic usually. Um, so a lot of people would probably see some of my approaches to ritual as bad <laughs> um, because I'm not always very rigid um, but what I do, but you know, ritual for me ranges for a lot of things. Like I do, you know, like a weekly I Ching and tarot reading, right? And so there's a bunch of ritual associated with that, like uh, from everything from the sacred cloth that I have covering the books and the paper um, to, you know, the order in which I light the incense and bring it down and put it on the desk that I have just cleaned and... Um, you know, how I lay down the cloth and the order in which I do things, the specific way that I that I write the reading down, um, the question that I ask, the way that I write the date and the time, the um the way that I breathe on the yarrow sticks as I am I mean it's it's it can it's very involved in fact and it's something that I don't even speak out loud like no one knows how like my wife has seen me do this hundreds of times and I have never explained to another soul how complex my actual ritual of doing this is and there's even a couple of different variations that I also that I consider within the realm of the correct you know in but it's all in my mind I've I've invented it all you know um but then you know rituals also um you know, I, I mean, in my daily life, I think I should probably have more, like it's a struggle of mine to have more ritual, um, more hab- habits mm-hmm. that can be defined as ritual to structure my day in a more mindful and spiritual way. I'm very, very bad when it comes to discipline, anything involving discipline, very, very bad. Um, and that's no secret to anybody. Um, the so, but that's something that I've just recognized. A lot of times I recognize things in my head before I recognize, before I'm able to incorporate it into my being, you know, and that's one of those things is that like, dude, you need to be a little bit more disciplined with certain daily habits that are almost always in some way or other ritualized or rituals themselves that will improve my mental state, improve my overall spiritual health and well-being and get me through my day. And get the things done, even even in some in, in very mundane, you know, secular senses. Even like the work that I have to do at my job, job, you know, things like that. These are sacred things and and rituals that would benefit every aspect of my life. So I'm always trying to do those things. Whether it's morning meditation, morning tai chi, um, things that I can never really get myself to do more than like 
three mornings a week on a good week, mm. you know? Um, so it comes down to that. But then, you know, ritual, and, and that's all mostly individual stuff, you know? But ritual, um, I think pretty much everyone will agree, is always more powerful when there's more people involved. Well, and let me put this into context for the listeners. Um, the reason we want to talk about ritual and ceremony today is because I had said to you, Chris, I'm going to go to Jerry Jam. And uh, even though I've been at places where the dead, you know, dead cover bands were playing, um, I just have never really listened and I've never really engaged fully with this ceremony that, and then you, you know, you said, well, better listen to my podcast. I yeah. took you through the whole thing. And so that, that's kind of what we're meeting to, to talk about here. And um, yeah, personal ritual versus as a group and the Grateful Dead is like yeah. And can thing. I explain that ritual oh, and how yeah. that works? So here's the thing, and and this is what a lot of people don't realize um, that even myself, like I said, you know, it took me probably ten years ish or so to even really click in a in a very spiritual way with the Grateful Dead after knowing of them and listening to them that whole time, um, but. It took even a few years longer than that before I, I had any real understanding of how the rhythm of a Grateful Dead show was itself a, um, honestly, very powerful, very real and tangible ritual that is specifically geared towards psychedelics. I mean, it can be experienced by anyone, but it is meant for, and I shouldn't even say it's like, it is meant for LSD. That is what it is for. Um, very specifically, I mean, for those of you who don't know, like the Grateful Dead in the early years was literally funded by like the first famous LSD chemist in existence, Owsley Stanley. Yes. Um, he bankrolled the band, um, for many years, you know, so this and, and their entire existence, I mean, was, you know, playing on LSD. I mean, they, the surviving members may well still be doing that to this day. In fact, um, I don't know if you know this, or I don't, I don't think we've talked about this, but like um, O'Teal Burbridge, who's the bassist for Dead & Company, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't necessarily quite out everybody, but he mentioned that at one of their shows last summer, they were, he was personally, and some of the others were on, not just LSD, but 1967 Owsley LSD that someone had in a vault all of these years. So this is still going on. I mean, even like um, Bill Kreutzmann, the Grateful Dead drummer who's still around, he talks about it pretty openly in his memoir that came out a couple of years ago. He's like, yeah, he's he's still doing it. Like there's no... So the Grateful Dead has always been... And in fact, it's actually a great book by um, a guy named Jesse Jarno, I believe, called Heads, um, that really picks up where the book Acid Dreams leaves off in terms of LSD history. And there is no two ways about it. We would not have LSD today if it were not for the Grateful Dead. And the fact that the Grateful Dead toured from 1965 to 1995, the supply chain and the entire commerce, spiritual as it is, associated with LSD would have died probably in the mid to late 70s, if it were not for the Grateful Dead and the tour that they kept going. Because the demand that they bolstered? Not just that, but they, um, the, the network. It was the, it was the very tribal nationwide network of, um, of course, buyers and sellers, you know, um, but the culture and the ritual, um, 
and all of the families, the chemists, you know, the people who produced and, you know, the, the very, very spiritual religious people who are responsible for producing this drug um, were all networked through the Grateful Dead. And that network remained intact because of that band and its tour. Um, that whole time. So this is, you cannot separate the psychedelic history of the second half of the 20th century from the Grateful Dead at all. Without one, the other doesn't exist. And it works both ways. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The um, the tribal quality or the, you know, the community, um, I'm wondering... How- there are probably so many technologies that also would have died had humans not, you know, tended to form in these like what is like 150 is the estimated like um, group that hu- humans most uh, effectively function in because um, it's small enough for everybody to know each other and there's mm-hmm. like a different element of trust. But um, yeah, wow, that's so fascinating. And so and it's, it also connects to it connects directly to technology too because the people who were inventing the internet both in Cambridge and in Stanford. University in California, were all basically deadheads and LSD people. Right. And so like the first emails that were ever sent, you know what I mean? These are people who are all heads, basically. Like there's, you can't separate it. It's not just like Steve Jobs and his ideas about acid or whatever, which usually make me roll my eyes. It goes much deeper than that and much earlier than Steve Jobs. It goes back to the late 60s, early 70s, really. And now everybody in Silicon Valley is microdosing. Exactly, exactly. This is, and people do assume that this is a new thing and it's very, very much not. Um, it may have dwindled, I think, for a period of time, say probably in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, but in the pioneering days, the 70s and 80s, like, oh my God, you can't, again, you can't separate the two. Um, they They go together. Um, so the, and so here's the thing, and I wasn't really super surprised when you mentioned to me that you didn't have necessarily a religious experience at Jerry Jam. I didn't. Because when you see a dead cover band, with the exception of Dead and Company, which some people do consider a dead cover band because it's not properly the Grateful Dead, and I understand that argument, I'm fine with it, um, they are going to give you a great show. They're going to play you great psychedelic music. They're almost always incredibly talented musicians. I should say Dark Star Orchestra will give you a similar experience as well because they are actually, they're more reenactors than they are a cover band. Like they are picking a an actual concert in Grateful Dead history and they are playing it note for note. They're basically like the Civil War reenactors of the Grateful Dead. Um, so so you you will get it there. But see, the important thing is not the songs but the structure of the entire show from beginning to end. That's the ritual. And that's what I really realized when I saw Dead and Company. I mean, I've listened to thousands of Grateful Dead bootlegs, you know. I mean, they're all out there on the internet. It's 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 one of the things about jam band culture, if you don't know, is that, you know, recordings of live performances are generally legally accessible for free. Um, so I've, I've obviously listened to these. I understand the structure. But Dead and Company follows the same structure of a show, of an original dead show. And that is the ritual. And it's it's very, very interesting. And so I, I did attempt to describe it in detail in um, the podcast episode we keep referencing, which takes a journey through this year's, um, the second night of Fenway Park, I believe it was June 18th, of Dead and Company. 
and um, what that ritual experience was for me in particular, you know? And it did it, you call that episode a Midsummer Night's Trip? I did. No. A Midsummer Night's Trip Part One, because yeah. I still have to put out Part Two, which actually takes place on Midsummer Night's Eve. And that's when things get a little dark and confusing mm. um, in a good way, but, uh, you know, inter- in a very interesting way. Only but, a psychedelic person would say dark and confusing in a good in way. In a good way. You're absolutely right. Yes, I think that is a very psychedelic mindset um, to have. And it's something that I think would have probably freaked me out a lot more if I was less psychedelic, if this was 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. say, and I had that same experience. I would have taken away a much more negative um, quality to it. Whereas over the years, I've now kind of come to realize that, hey, if you have a little bit of a difficult time, um, there's a there's a reason for it, you know? And it's the, the, I mean, it's hard to not talk about some of these drugs as if they were deities and beings sometimes. And I, and I always have really. So I'll yeah. just come out and say it. The acid wanted you, wanted to tell you something. The acid was, there was a message there from the drug. Yeah. And you should take it. You shouldn't resist it. You should take it. And sometimes that's difficult. Right. I know. I personify drugs and substances all the time. You actually talked about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it makes it easier to, to convey the experience sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my friend Heidi says, when you're in a difficult place, you, you know, take a deep breath, right? Get there. And you say, what do you have to teach me? Mm-hmm. What is here? Exactly. What and is like, here? You know, we all know listeners out there, like, how many of the huge lessons of your life were actually fun to learn? You know, like, I mean, I don't know if you're anything like me. I mean, I, I do tend to learn things the hard way more than most people, but I would say that all of the really big lessons I have learned have been extremely unpleasant. Oh, um, yeah. Terrible, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm glad that I learned them. You know, they're very important things to learn, you know? I mean, that's, I mean, such is life, you know? It's not all going to be, and it shouldn't all be just, you know, smiles and pretending that it's all good. I mean, we, we don't learn that way. We don't grow that way. No, I know. I was, I was talking to someone today who had um, a, history with like very dangerous life-threatening addiction mm-hmm. and um, experienced Iboga got clean oh, and cool. then was processing and ended up um, needing some further work and sat with ayahuasca a oh. lot wow. you know in like a, a very dedicated and did dieta mm-hmm. um, and so as we spoke um, it was what was coming up for this person was um, how uncomfortable it is right now you know all that is over so much of the dust is settling and um, in what what happens now? Yeah. And, and I said, this discomfort, you know, the anger, the fear, all of it, uh, if, if, if it was comfortable and pleasant to like approach your destiny, then we would not even keep approaching. We'd just stay where we are. Right. So what would it even be? You know, exactly. It's kind of like conflict in a way too, is that conflict is, is an opportunity to progress further and to create something new because we have two parts or, you know, often in conflict, there's more than two sides, but really they're not different sides. They're just different places. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And you let everyone weigh in, you take everyone into account. That's a really important part. And that's how conflict is like a fractal as well. Absolutely. And I've always had a very hard time with people who are extremely conflict averse. I, I can't relate to that, I guess. And I say this as a person who now I'm much more open to conflict now. I shouldn't say that. I've always been, I'm, no, I've always been very open to conflict. Um, but I don't like it. It takes a lot out of me. It, you know what I mean? It, it, conflict often exhausts me. You know, so it's not something that I relish, you know, but I never back down from it. And I never really even try to resist it because like, you know, if, if you're butting up against something that needs to be addressed, like, why would you walk away from that? Like, why would you just 
turn you're you're missing out you know what i mean you're both of like whoever's involved in this conflict is missing out you are and so is the other person or the whatever the opponent may be um both sides are are not going to benefit from just walking away that's that's not how anything ever gets done um you know on a small scale or a large scale you know so so yeah, I have, I know a lot of people just are by nature, like very conflict averse. And so they usually don't like me really, or they get on their nerves very quickly because I can be, you know, very, I'm, I'm a strong willed person and I don't, like I said, shy away from conflict at all. And that can put people off. And I, I do get disappointed by that. You know, I don't like to put people off and you know what I mean? It's, it's not intentional and I don't enjoy it. But at the same time, I really believe that like, it's necessary Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is, I can't, um, I can't avoid that. But the the interesting thing about that part one of Midsummer Night's Trip is that there was no conflict. It was a beautiful night. It was nothing but fun and joy and, and everything else and good people and good music and good times. It was one of the greatest nights I've ever spent in my life. And that is, in fact, what makes it so good to describe the ritual because there were there were no complicating factors really the the ritual was very pure um and so i guess i should say that's why i'm doing you know part one and part two you know Mm -hmm. part two is going to make a lot more sense because we explained the clean ritual first you know Mm -hmm. the ritual will often involve conflict the ritual will often involve discomfort you know but it's easier to understand the ritual with discomfort if you first had it explained to you without it you know and so basically the way that it works i mean I'm going to oversimplify this, but you know, you the the show is going to last about three and a half hours, and so you know, obviously, an LSD trip is is going to last, you know, usually ten to twelve hours or so. But think of it as you just took it pretty soon before the show, you know. So when the show starts, this is the way it's designed, anyways. right? And the the LSD is the sacrament, right? Can, That's can, right. Can I just oh, like yes. check in on a few? Like, Absolutely. can we do oh, the map yeah. key? Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, let's so, do that. So the LSD or the substance is the sacrament because people drink too. Oh yeah. Right? Oh totally. I had okay. drinks in yeah. the middle of the sacrament. Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, totally. Yeah, people do drink. Everybody's smoking pot. Um, you know, the, a- anything you can think of. Of course, people are doing mushrooms. Like, um, there's a lot of ecstasy. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they're probably not back in the '60s, but you know, um, that's when that stuff sort of started coming right. out. Um, definitely not in the '60s because it hadn't been right. It was the, it was the '70s, I think, really, right? Yeah. Um, when it started coming out, and yeah. I think they had like some MDA before they even they had did. MDMA. They did. Yeah. Um, so all of these things did crop up around the dead as well. Um, but so today you have plenty of people doing Molly, um, you know, anything you can think of really. Um, but the, as I said, the, the whole thing was geared, was architected around LSD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And um, well, this isn't part of the map key, but something I wanted to say a few moments ago was um, just as people are conflict averse, I think that people can also be difficult experience averse. And this is like, this is what keeps a lot of people who are curious about altered states of consciousness, but you know, they've heard about the difficult experience. And for me, that's when I first heard about ayahuasca, um, you know, and, and it was introduced to me in, in a bit of a negative way mm-hmm. um, when I was first told about it, because um, my friend is a travel agent mm-hmm. and she worked in Peru mm-hmm. and um, she and a friend had said, you know, made an inside joke. And uh, I said, what? And she said, oh, it's this like drink that people drink and then they puke all night. And it's like some <laughs> like is, oh, it's magic thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I was like, oh, like I was kind of like my grandmother, like I would never want to do that. Um 
And even look, I'll I'll even admit, even as experienced as I am with psychedelics, I would love to try ayahuasca, and I'm sure that I will someday. It's it does scare the shit out of me, though. You know what I mean? All the I've had I've heard positive stories, you know, but the whole it, it's a it's a scary sounding drug. You know, like I said, even to an experienced person like myself, you know, um, like I said, I wouldn't shy away from doing it at all. But that's, but that again, that's the, I don't really try to avoid the conflict or avoid the difficult experience. It makes me more curious mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I wouldn't approach it lightly, you know, <laughs> because it does, it definitely is intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. I read this article by Zara Sita. She writes, she lives in Costa Rica and, um, or I think that she wrote this article, but she may have just shared it. Uh, to be honest, I'll have to check that. Oh, should I put it in the show notes? You should put it in the show notes. Okay, yeah. noted. Um, uh, about medicines that are like painful or uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna maybe butcher the name Sananga. Have you heard of Sananga eye drops? I haven't. Yeah, they're, they're these eye drops that um, they uh, they burn like shit. Oh I guess. yeah. Yeah. The, they're they're put in and uh, they're probably extracted from some really exotic thing. And there's some mystical experience associated or rape. Perhaps you've heard of hape. Yep. Yep. The powdered yep. tobacco yep. shot up into the nasal cavity, yep. maximal burning and eye watering. And for me, uh, buckets of saliva dripping down. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> um, oh, and, and that's like, you know, if, if you've ever, uh, smoked a cigarette too fast or like (laughs) plenty of times it's just like a hundred times that or um combo the frog medicine okay yeah the and that one well uh the point of that article was to say that part of the healing or the the growth the uh the insight and the journey comes from um bearing and remaining through these you know human experiences of of suffering physical and whatnot which can be you know they can be unpleasant but yeah that's that is what they go and i i i wish i could remember this but this was right before my my double trip midsummer night experience i had been listening to and i have never been able to find which thing it was, but one of the many psychedelic podcasts that I listened to, whether it was so many, all whether of it them. was yeah, whether it was Psychedelic Salon 2.0 or Psychedelics Today or like the Psychedelic Parenting podcast, or yeah, maybe one. even Duncan Trussell had a guest on. Talk. I don't remember who it was, but you know, it was one of those male run psychedelic sure, podcasts, right? I'm oh, sure okay. that it was. Male, yes, male unfortunately, I'm sure that it was. Um, and the guest on there was saying now, and and I really hadn't had so much as a difficult... And I would still say, even the trip that I had on Midsummer Night Eve was not bad. I wouldn't call it bad or, you know, like what people say, that you know, a bad trip. The ne- would never say that about it at all. And I have not, in all of the experiences that I have had, I have not had a bad trip since 2004, maybe, but you know? I mean, we talked about... There's no such thing as a bad trip, exactly. only a difficult it, one. That's exactly right. Although back then I was much less experienced and it was overwhelming, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it never got better, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it never, like the outcome of it itself was kind of bad and like even like... But at the So the, the time that I'm thinking of was actually a time of tremendous change in like the group of friends that I was in. You know, people had... Some of them had already moved away. Um, like we were all... It was a, you know, kind of a... It's interesting. We were all still called, like none of us were graduating college, but we were all, many of us were leaving though. Mm. And so it was a time of tremendous change. And so in that way, it actually was very symbolic. You know, I understand now why it happened the way that it did. But back then, my impression of it was just extremely negative because, you know, the, 
I guess the part of the lesson from it was that we were all splitting up, you know, and that was there. There was no um, reconciliation that was a part of this. Like you didn't end it on it was it didn't end on a great note. Like we didn't all come out of it feeling like there was a a resolution, you know, or a um, oh man, you know, like we did that thing wrong, and like I learned this from it. It wasn't like that. It was the lesson was destruction, you know. That it was, it, it, and that's what it was. That that era of our lives was ending and it was ending in some ways very explosively and it came out in the trip, you know, and that was extremely unpleasant, you know? Um, but I haven't even had a really a difficult trip in many years before, um, you know, like a month ago. And, but the guest on the show had said, um, you know, like if you're serious about psychedelics and you're going to do them often and you're going to do them to try to grow, you are going to have unpleasant experiences. And I remember listening to that being like, well, you know, that really doesn't happen to me very often, but I know he's right. You know, I know, I know that's true, mm -hmm. but I haven't experienced that. And then like a week later, that, <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. I, and I knew it at the time, I think at the time I remembered it, I'm like, yep. That son of a bitch, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, um, I've sat with so many people having difficult experiences, working through things, um, you know, be, you know, catalyzed by substance or not. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have admitted it to anybody, but I deep down was like, well, I'm, I'm never going to get to that place. You know, I've, I've got my shit together right? and yes. I've got this on lock and I'm <laughs> yes. watching what's happening. Yes. Yeah. And, and then what do you know? You know, I just, I was with a, a group of friends, you know, esteemed colleagues and mm -hmm. suddenly like Don't shit started it getting real. To you, kids. Oh, <laughs> very humbling, very useful. It is. And well, that's exactly how it was for me. It was humbling. That was the, that was the biggest thing I took away from it. It was like, <laughs> you're not such a master, Sonny, you know, yeah. <laughs> you've got a long ways to go. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of difficult trips, though, and like, and this is an interesting thing in, in terms of like, say, like the, um, the seminar that Psychedelics Today is putting on with like how to handle these things and how to guide people. This is a story that I read once about Owsley Stanley, like way back in the day. And I believe it was supposedly had taken place at a Grateful Dead show. Um, and this is perhaps a method that I don't necessarily expect the Psychedelics Today people to be teaching. Um, but I found it a very, very interesting story. Who knows if it's really true, but it, it's a legend in any case. And so there's this guy just <laughs> freaking out. He's laying on the ground, writhing on the ground, right? I'm going to die. He's screaming, you know, I'm going to die. Like, and, and like, no one can calm this guy down. There's a circle of people gathered around him and nobody can help him. Nothing anybody says um, can do it. He's just, I'm dying. I'm going to die. Help me, you know? And like, of course, I'm sure plenty of the people around him are also tripping and they're probably starting to freak out, you know, and like, uh, no one knows what to do, right? So out of nowhere, up comes Owsley Stanley. And he walks up to the guy and he whispers something in his ear. And the guy stopped screaming, stopped writhing, and he stood up, kind of like looked around, and he walked away. And so someone, you know, naturally, after this is clearing up, so they turn to Owsley, and they're like, what the hell did you say to this guy? And he says, I said, die, motherfucker. Zendo project, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's very interesting, like the way that these things wow. work, though. You know, and it, but you know, if you think about it, right, it makes a ton of sense because, like, a lot of what makes a bad trip is resisting. It's it's especially I shouldn't say. I mean, we we keep talking about like these things are difficult but not bad and all this stuff. But what I think what I, the way I would differentiate it, what makes it bad 
is resistance. And that's what makes you like potentially writhe on the ground screaming, you know, mm. is you are resisting what is happening to you. Um, and I've even heard again, when we're, we're talking about the legends, you know, we're talking about like the, you know, when somebody takes the thumbprint of LSD, which have you ever heard of the thumbprint? Uh, no. Supposedly, it's an initiation ritual for people at a certain level in the LSD um, supply chain. Oh my God. Are these like the toppers? I don't know what the toppers oh, are. Uh, I learned this word in high school. Um, it's like someone that's like, oh yeah, you drank 20 beers and puked while well, I drank 30 uh, beers. So it's not really like, in a way, it kind of is like that, but not really. So this is like, these are the people that I mentioned when I said that they are, they're very religious, you know, like at the at the higher levels of LSD production and distribution, you know, they, they consider this very much a sacrament. They consider what they're doing a sacred obligation even, you know? So they are very tribal. And that's why so few of them, frankly, have gone to jail over the years. And the ones that do go to jail for a very long time because they don't rat anybody out. Uh, um, because long prison sentences don't threaten them because it's a religious thing. It's not a, it's not a drug thing. It's not a money thing. It's bigger than them. It, it, that's right. That's right. They are literally, they believe they're doing God's work, as I, I said to you that day, you know? Um, that's, that's how they see it. And so, again, supposedly, but I have seen this and I've actually seen it more or less corroborated by that newer book, Heads, by Jesse Jarno. So I'm starting to think it's actually pretty true, is in order to be initiated into this thing, and it's also something that they have weaponized before. They've like done it to informants and cops to neutralize them. Oh. Um, but you basically are given a thumbprint of crystal LSD. So a you're talking, for, for those of you out there, you're talking... 500 or so hits uh, the equivalent of Whoa. okay and it's just pressed into your skin if some some people say they put it in your mouth but you don't have to it, it can be um it can be absorbed right through your skin especially at that quantity you know you just put it down put it press it into your palm and what happens in that experience basically like it's a you need a babysitter more or less for like a week after this at least mm -hmm. you know and you don't they say you never go back to normal basically that's like what happened in cheech and chong up in smoke right he's like here man take these these will mellow you out yeah oh no don't take those man kind yeah exactly so the and for the first like 24 to 48 hours you are going to be immobile basically and what people who have experienced this almost universally describe is death and they almost universally describe it the same way. Like which a psychological is, experience of death? Like they experience death. Like they will say like death, death. Like, but like just for for those of you out there, um, the drug- the They drug, don't die. The drug toxicity of LSD oh, is yes, one of the yes, highest. No, correct, yes, correct. As in it it's, takes so much more than a normal dose to kill a person. Yeah, you can't, you can't actually die from it. Right. Yeah. That, absolutely. Yes. Good, well, it's good, like, good clarification. Yes. About, well, the toxicity level where, the, where like about 50% of, um, of mice will die is 1,000. Do times a normal dose sure yeah so, and with for tylenol it's like 30 absolutely oh absolutely yeah, yeah. heroin for, six for Brittany, yeah uh, yeah a lot of them it's coffee it's, 100 exactly i was just gonna say like six i mean that's a very common it, it oftentimes it is less than 10 mm -hmm. um yeah absolutely so yeah so i mean i am not talking they, they didn't they were not in physical danger um but what they experienced was they usually describe it as like they they realize that they're dying, that they are a, uh, I've seen it described multiple times as being a drop of water falling into the ocean. 
and that the biggest mistake that any of them can make in that experience, and that usually those who have done this by mistake, or who are not doing this as part of a ritual initiation, who mm-hmm. are not doing this on purpose, mm-hmm. um, but have done it either because they insisted that someone give it to them, um, or because they uh, just did it, you know, um, they fight it. They fight the death. Mm-hmm. They, they fight dying. And what what the others will say is like, no, you just have to let it go. And they all think of it as a beautiful experience that they realize they're like, oh my God, like all of life is just oneness, you know? And like mm-hmm. right now I'm a drop of rain and I will rejoin the ocean one day. Um, and it's as simple as that. It's as, is that bad? You know, like would, would you consider that a bad thing? I mean, how would you describe a drop of water going into the ocean as bad, you know? But that's the thing is it's the fighting of it that makes it bad. Mm. It's only the fighting of it. And, you know, this even ties into the fact that like LSD itself is um, used for preparing people for death. It, mm. it, it helps. That's one of the therapeutic uses of it in particular. Yeah, and psilocybin. Is, you know, preparing people to um, grapple with impending death. And then some people like, you know, Aldous Huxley had uh, it injected into his arm mm-hmm. to die. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not from the LSD, but he, w- he knew it was the moment of death and he had his wife injected into him because it would make the transition easier. Timothy Leary did the same thing. Um, it, and so that it makes sense that, that you, if you take this super, super high dose, that is what you experience. And the only thing that you can do wrong that will make it bad is to fight it, you know? And I think that that's- Try to control it. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you have to let go. Yeah, you have yeah. to, you, there is no control. This, we, you are dealing with things that are bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, like when you talk about being humbled and I felt like I was humbled, that was the reminder for me. That was the little slap I got that was like, remember, you are good at this. And you have been good at this for 15 years, mm. but you are not the master of it. Mm. It is bigger than you. Like when the teacher lays the smack down on yes. you in martial arts that's, or something. That's exactly what it was mm-hmm. like. Yes, it was like the drug was saying, <laughs> <laughs> settle down there, you know, yeah. like, you, you know, you, um, you're doing good, you know, but you're, you know, you're not in charge. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, that was like my first time sitting with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had no idea what to expect. I hadn't been in any ceremony or ritual of any kind at all. Like I saw them burning sma- sage. Oh, what's that? Like mm-hmm. I, I used to always think people burning Palo Santo were holding a big joint because it's just like from afar. That's what it, that away. Is what it looks like. Looks like yeah. a blunt. Yeah. Um, uh, but so, so many things. Others have heard my my first ayahuasca experience, but uh, we were told to come with questions, and I kind of scoffed at all the advice, you know, especially like don't do this, don't do that. Oh, I can't like have sex for a week. Like, why is the yeah, ayahuasca right. like yeah, exactly. too pure? That, like, that, that's see that when I say that I'm like usually a heretic or heterodox, those are the things that I'm like, screw you, man. Yeah, like we're like I ain't yeah. gonna fast. Are yeah. you kidding me? No salt. <laughs> yeah. Fuck off. Yeah, exactly. Salt. Yeah, you're crazy. You know, like I'm never. I'm not doing that. You know? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, but. I follow. I followed along because uh, I like rule. When rules are presented to me and it's going to change, you know, the outcome of something, I'm like, okay, let's see what the outcome is. When we follow the rules, and then we'll break the rules later if we want. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's find wow. out this way, and then I'll be like, okay, yeah, I should have followed. The <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And one of the advisings was to bring questions, an intention, or questions. Mm-hmm. And I was even pretty new to this word intention, other than a. a street level understanding of it. But I, I brought questions. Um, why did so-and-so break up with me? Uh, why did I lose this job that was supposed to be really important? Why conflict with, you know, this family member? Uh, you know, why, where, when? Mm-hmm. And um, I, 
yeah, I, well, like, what is ayahuasca going to make me a bulleted list of like answers and responses? <laughs> I had all these really fresh, really yeah. fresh. And I'm yeah. sure that to yeah. personify, I'm sure ayahuasca was like, oh, okay, we've yeah. got a good one. <laughs> ayahuasca was probably amused seeing you approach. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Like rubbing her yes. ayahuasca hands together and grinning. Um, and yeah, so I, I drank the first serving and it was like in a sort of san- pseudo Santo Daime style ceremony. So it's like multiple drinks throughout the night and I drank the first and, um, sat and also wasn't really used to sitting cross-legged. I hadn't done Vipassana at that time. Yeah. I was yeah, like, I'm terrible. That's why I'm sitting up here. Yeah. Well, you gotta have, you gotta <laughs> elevate your hips you, and if, you know, if you want to. Um, then the second cup, and then I started feeling things mm-hmm. and, um, and the, I felt myself, what is myself, whatever it is, leaving my body, like floating up, but also going down. And um, I was like clinging to my cushion and like, I'm not leaving here. Like, I'm going to experience this, but I, Leah, I'm going to experience it. I'm not going to give up control and, and all the fighting that I did. And then I, I like, and eventually other things happened. I feel and now I'm going to have to be careful not to like tell stories multiple times on the podcast. Oh yeah. It's like, I don't know if I've even, I know I've talked about this at Ben meetings, uh, Boston Entheogenic network meetings, but I mean, it's okay if you've talked about it on other people's podcasts. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. totally. Totally. Just right. don't do this. Talk about this the next episode. You, you can even talk about it again on your podcast. As long as you wait a few episodes. <laughs> okay. 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 Cool. Cool. Or like people can fast forward. People will be stuff. forgiving. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Especially if it's a good story. Well, the part, the part of this story that plays into what we're talking about is that, um, I eventually went up to the, um, the like medicine woman and I said, kind of what I was experiencing and she's she's South African and she said it's just a little slide it's just a little slide and I I have since then used that for times when I'm resisting and I can't let go it's just a little slide okay like just a little slide if you're trying to get into some cold water in the ocean or something try that it's just a little little slide slide. you know you'll be at the bottom and uh you know I'm I'm not sorry, sorry, not sorry to say I, I didn't take the slide. You know, I proceeded to resist the whole night and writhed and saw these yeah. serial, <laughs> really scary images and writhed some more and um, wrote in my journal these really scribbly, um, I don't know. Don't fight it, kids. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's like, I feel like it comes back to conflict. I just Conflict's been on my mind so much since yeah. that talk. Conflict and... And growth is all about uh, acknowledging here we are. Heidi's favorite thing to say. Well, here we are. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do? Yeah. Yep. I love it. Um, so we went, I'm trying to trace back where we went to, <laughs> but in any case, I guess, let me just give the listeners a sense of this ritual and like how the rhythm goes, you know? And so I guess for those of you who have never taken like LSD at all, I mean, let me just sort of describe the rhythm of it for you. Like, I mean, this is going to be like if you have, you know, a decent, I would say, 100 microgram hit, you know, and it's decent acid and it's it's for real. Unlike everything that was around in like 2005, um, you know, which was mostly research chemicals and LSA and things like that marketed as LSD. And and people can buy test kits from Dance Safe. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And the psychologist and its affiliates do not contone or facilitate illegal activity. Oh, of course of not. Any kind. No, neither, neither does the Wizard of Monadnock. Um, but I'm just saying, if you're going to do it, you know, if that's what you are going to do, um, this is what it's like. And, um, you know, I, I read it in a 
in the Hardy Boys detective handbook when I was younger. That's how I learned about all of the drugs um, that I pretend to have done. Um, but um, the uh, what basically what what'll happen is you know prepare yourself for like twelve hours in total. Um, but you're you're really talking about I'd say eight that are going to be fairly um, intense to different degrees. But basically, you're going to have about an hour of come up. Um, where you, um, there's going to be different periods of time where you, you feel it and you don't feel it. And you're like, am I feeling it? And maybe I'm not feeling, I don't really know. I should take more. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, the, yes, the, that's the classic rookie response is I should take more. Don't, um, give it a, <laughs> give it a little while. Um, you know, you will basically about an hour and a half in, you're probably going to start your peak. If it is good LSD, like I'm describing, your peak is going to last probably at least a couple of hours, um, sometimes a little bit more than that. And by peaking, it means like that's that's going to be the height of the experience and the part where you are perhaps the most out of control, you're the most overwhelmed by the drug, usually in my experience in a very positive way. Um, but it is like you are it sweeps over you and it lifts you up and you are just blazing. Like you are, the energy is blasting from your skull. And after that though, that's when you are able to verbalize things a little bit better. You're able to, your motor skills are going to be a little bit better. That's what, what people will describe as the plateau. And that will go on for four to six hours after that. And so you are very, very, very much tripping at that point, but you also know that you have, you have gone past a certain peak um, that you are no longer at, um, but the effects of the drug are very, very strong within you. And then after that, you're going to have, you know, the last few hours of it are going to be much more mellow. You are still very much in it and you can still access it, but it is, it is no longer dominant within you. Okay, so, I mean, I'm describing a 10 to 12 hour affair. And as I mentioned earlier, a Grateful Dead concert is only going to be three and a half hours, which is still a very long time, three and a half to four hours in total, including all the breaks. Um, And so the ritual, and this is, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but this is something that I've really found in the last couple of years um, with potentially allegedly um, engaging in this substance, LSD, is that I have learned, in fact, that when, whereas when I was younger, I was very much, I had this sort of, this very rigid idea that like the entire 10 or 12 hours must be treated in the most like sacred way, you know, way and all this stuff. Whereas now I really realize that like, oftentimes I get what I need from the first five hours and I know it. Like there's a, it's a, it's a very, very clear thing in my head where I'm like, yep, you you got it. Like you, you, the experience has happened and now you're going to enjoy the next several hours, but it doesn't, there's, there's no shame in doing Like if you want to lay down, go lay down. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't, there's no guilt or anything. You haven't wasted anything. If you, even if you kind of cut it short, you know, if you're feeling tired um, or if you just sort of veg out after that, it's fine. Yeah. So oftentimes I can get what I am looking for in the early stages of the trip. And that is what this ritual is designed to do. You know, now oftentimes with a, you know, you would, you know, and saying Grateful Dead culture, you know, you would return to the parking lot or the campground after the ritual is over. So you've completed the ritual. And then after the ritual, it's just celebration. You know, after that point, you're celebrating with your friends. Um, you're going to sing songs like the, the serious part is over. But so this really gets you through the peak and the early part of the plateau. 
So what happens is as you're coming up and in the beginning part of the peak, you have the first set. The first set is going to be about an hour long, maybe a little bit more. And the first set, in contrast to the rest of the show, is going to be much more what people are familiar with, with songs, structured songs, verses, choruses. There's still going to be um, solos. You know, there's still going to be what you might describe as short jams, but they will be short. Um, it It is much more typical song structure, one song after another, after another, after another. Um, there's going to be highs and lows still. There's going to be very, very beautiful, poignant moments. Um, there's going to be um, emotion. There's going to be storytelling. Um, it's very, very engaging. You know, as you're coming up and as you're beginning to peak, um, it's very, very wonderful. But make no mistake about it, that first set is an appetizer. It is not the main course. Um and so they're going to end it. And they're usually going to end it on some awesome note, like some something whether it's either like soft and beautiful or really fast and and dance oriented and celebratory. Um, they the the rhythm of it is is very important in this ritual, and they never slacked off on that. Like that was they always delivered. And did they always come up with a set list? Um, they they say no. I mean, I think what they would do is write out something loose um, and perform it, but they. They they say that they never really had a solid set list, and mm-hmm. that they would just look look at each other and figure out what they were going to play. Okay, um, and there, but there were. It's important to note, for the most part, there are obviously exceptions to these rules. But there are songs in the Grateful Dead repertoire that are almost exclusively first set songs. You will not hear them in the second set, and there are a lot of second set songs and encore songs even that you will almost never hear in the first set. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so they didn't, they, they were very loose about it and they would improvise, but there were, there were rules around the improvisation. You know what I'm saying? Like there yeah. were um, guidelines, I guess. Cause the, the um, sort of Neo Santa Dime ayahuasca that I participated in was um, usually the, the person overseeing the whole thing. He, he said he, started serving ayahuasca and he would come up with a list of songs. And um, then the third time that he was, you know, being the shaman or whatever, he, he didn't, he couldn't play. Mm -hmm. He he wasn't trying to, he just couldn't pick up the instrument and he waited and he he thought, okay, let me wait. Let me, let me look. And he said five minutes, 10 minutes, silence went by, you know, everyone's sitting there. I can imagine it was a little bit awkward (laughs) And, uh, and he said 20 minutes went by and then ayahuasca said, okay, so are you going to let me choose the songs? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And after that, he, he never decided on anything sure, ever again. And sure. he just listened. He let ayahuasca drive. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So it's pretty funny. I wonder if there's some sort of other force go- governing it as well. Oh, I quite possibly. I mean, I think that's how this whole structure was developed. I mean, this was, again, this was very, I mean, let's also keep in mind, I mean, I talked about kind of the the whole history of the Grateful Dead, but even at the very beginning, you know, even before Owsley was on the picture, Owsley, they were, they came to Owsley's attention because they were the house band for the Merry Pranksters acid tests. So that's where they come from. They were the house band. And when they were the house band for the acid test, they would play for like, you know, seven or eight hours. And then they literally had no structure. They wouldn't, oftentimes they weren't playing songs. They were participants in the acid test. And oftentimes in the ballroom where they were having these things, there would be two bands. There would be the Grateful Dead and there would be Keezy and his asshat pranksters 
who couldn't play instruments but had them and were just playing gibberish noise. So, and they would play it at the same time in a single ballroom. So there would be like weird clownish gibberish noise over here and then the Grateful Dead kind of trying to play real songs, kind of, over <laughs> here. Um, and it, they, they would get cogent at some points and then fall out of it. You know what I mean? But like, that's, that's where they come from. And I think that that, those experiences really are where the structure of these shows came from. I mean, the first, I'd say the first couple of years, I mean, by the time you get to like 67, 68, 69, you're starting to see this structure, but it's really like when you hit like 70, then it's there. It's fully formed. They, they baked it. Um, and it's remained the same to this day. Like I said, Dead and Company is following the same format. Um, when that hour is up, when that appetizer is over, you're going to have a fairly long set break. Um, who knows what they do? They eat dinner. They they do all kinds of things. I mean, they, it can be up to an hour um, that they're going to be off stage. Um, which some people, you know, people will be like, wow, it's a long time. But they don't realize that like that first set is about as long as many mainstream artists will play for their entire show, mm. you know? Um, and I've seen this happen and I'm like, I'll be with people who have only gone to normal concerts and I'm like an hour, you know, where they played songs, like they play them on the album. Like that's not a show. Yeah. You know, I could have watched this on my TV screen and had the same effect, you know? Mm. So it's very much not like that. You know, they, they play, it was the same thing. There was a, um, a story I heard once where they ran into some other band in England, you know, and that band, that guy from that band was like, you guys only play like 80 shows a year. We talk, we play like 250 or something, but that guy, they would play 45 minute sets, mm. 250 times. They would play three and a half hours, um, you know, 70 nights a week. I mean, it's an exhausting thing for both performers and audience members, frankly, by the mm -hmm. time you finish it, you know? So they take this big, long break. They're going to come back with the second set. And by the time, so you as the participant in the ritual, by this time you are peaking for sure. I mean, you probably had a lot of laughs at set break. You know, you're up there. You're you're at the the commanding heights. And when they come back, the first song might be kind of a throwaway song. Oftentimes it is. It's, it's a warm up, more or less. It's to get you and them back, back on the in. same page. Mm -hmm. And after that, they are going to take you. You will be swept away. You will be. If you are on LSD at this point in time, you will be. They will take you where they want you to go or where it wants all of us collectively to go, however you want to put it. Um, you will be swept away. And they're going to play songs. Sometimes they're going to be slower, emotional, like, you know, semi-ballady songs. Sometimes they're going to be, you know, really um, fast-paced songs. Um, but the key here, differentiating us from what we had in the first set, is now we're really starting the improvisational jams. Now we're, we're really going deep and you don't necessarily know where it's going to go. And we're much, much less, we're, we're a little bit further out of the song, I mean, verse, chorus, verse um, type of a structure in anything that is being played at this point. Now this is going to go on for 30 to 45 minutes and it's going to descend into a 10 to 15 minute long drum solo. And as I said in my podcast, even to myself, when I hear 10 to 15 minute drugs, drum solo, that sounds awful. That is a terrible thing. I like drums and everything else, but who the hell wants to be there live? You know, and when, when, when I listen to live shows, uh, recordings of the dead, and, and I hear this from even longtime heads, you always skip drums. That's what it's called, drums. Um, 
pretty much you always skip it unless you but when you're there though when you're there and you're live and this was something that i experienced last year at my first dead and company show you realize that drums is the point of the drums is the heart it's the core of the ritual it is the ritual it's the climax yes you get into drums and you are blown that's when you see god like that's when you see whatever it is that you're going to see like that's when you see things you know that's when you are taken to another a veil is drawn back and you have access to a completely different place and you're gone you know and it's it it you know it's a cliched expression but the the uh the, the truest usage of it that i have ever known is is this is drums your mind is blown you are blown away. You and you you will almost inevitably experience some kind of ego loss if only for the fact that you cannot think. Mm. You, your your ability to really cogently put a thought together during this intense and it and it's you know it's not just like you know you're like rock and roll drumming. It's it's usually very tribal. Um and there's I should add the the dead has a drummer and a percussionist as well. So there's two people making rhythmic sounds for this period of time. The other members, the non-rhythm section of the band will leave the stage during this. They will go and they used to say that they would like drink, you know, some of Phil Lesh really liked French wine at one point in time. He's had a liver transplant since then, so he can't drink anymore, but he would drink a bottle of French wine while the drummers were playing. They would all go and do their, their things. Uh Um, And then- Were they like sexual people too? Was this like, is that part of dead? Like, I mean- uh, in the normal rock and roll way, I would say. Okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and in the way that, you know, coming out of 60s free love type stuff. Right. That's what I was know? thinking. Um, I was wondering if they would like sneak off the stage and like have a quickie. I'm sure. Oh. I'm sure sometimes, okay. you know, yeah, I have no doubt. Okay. Um, I guess it probably depends on what mental state they were actually in and right, what they right. needed yeah, at that point in time. Psychedelics aren't really catalyzers of sexual for me especially they're really yeah. not you know yeah. so if that's childlike I- exactly mm-hmm. exactly so if that's what they were doing i would guess not mm-hmm. but who the hell knows mm-hmm. you know what i mean like they, their experiences of these things are so normal and so regular you know what i mean that who knows what it what they wanted from it you know what i mean mm-hmm. um but so they go off and then it switches then the non-rhythm players come back on the stage and the drummers leave and that's what we call space. So it's a two-part thing, drums and space. Drums is the really intense part, but space, the uh, the other instrumentalists will come back on and they will, again, play something, no song, just freeform. They're just playing sounds with their instruments. And so it, it continues this thing. And what they're going to do to come out of it, they're either going to come out of it seamlessly also there will be no pause there will be no pause going into drums or coming out of space or in between drums and space there is no pause in fact most of the time there is no pausing during the entire second set this is an hour and a half long of music continually played Hmm. no stopping um they're going to either go into um probably a a kind of fast-paced driving song and then drop into what is called the ballad in capital letters the ballad of the show um or they're going to drop directly from space into the ballad and the ballad is the catharsis this is very important so you have had you have had this peak this climax right this super super intense experience and they're going to slowly bring you back down to earth and you are going to feel as a human feels 
and you are going to feel very, very deeply. And so these ballads, I don't think any of them, and we think of ballads, we usually think of like a love song. I don't think any of them are love songs. They're, they're called the ballad because they are the slow emotional tune. It's always a Jerry Garcia song. Um, always. It's never Bobby Weir doing the ballad. It's, um, and that is for many people, oftentimes for me, listening to a show and experiencing the Dead and Company shows I've seen, it's the, it's my favorite part. It's it just, it's so emotional and beautiful. It's always the beauty is it, it, it breaks the heart, you know, like it, 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 it just takes you, you know, like you are overwhelmed by the beauty. And sometimes it's beauty of sadness. Sometimes the ballad is a sad ballad. You know, the emotion is, it's raw, you know, it's, it can be, you know, looking back disappointed on, on a life. Um, like, uh, like I would say, like the songs Warfrat and Stella Blue are both like that. Warfrat. Yeah. Uh, Warfrat is one of the ballads. At Jerry Jam, they had, um, it's a group. Yeah, the Warfrats. Yeah. They're the sober deadheads. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're all over the place. Yes. Ah, okay. Yes. And the, the song Warfrat, it describes a, a Warfrat, a, a like bum who lives by the docks oh. who like drinks too much, basically. He's, uh-huh. he's, and the, the, the line at the peak of the song is, I know that the life I'm living is no good. I'll get a new start, live the life. Um, now I'm screwing it up. Um, live the life I should. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, and there's actually like a call out to God in part of it. And it's a conversational tune too. These are lyrics where the, the story of the song is, um, the initial singer of, the, uh, the, the person talking in the first part of the lyrics is the narrator and he meets up with the wharf rat whose name is August West. And so, some of the lyrics are said by the narrator and some are said by August West, but that's his story. He lost his love. He lost, you know, and he's like, you know, uh, if God is willing, I'll get another start. Um, and so that's, so you can see where this, the sobriety culture ties in with that, you know? And I'm like trying to look up right now, the founders of AA, when did that happen? Oh, seventies, um, I believe, or yeah, I okay. think Cause yeah, that, that's... Bill W was into LSD. Right. Well. Right. All seems very connected. It very much, it is. It is connected. That's why I, I, I like the history of these things a lot, and the. That's why I feel really good about the um, event in Boston in September. The mm, trip history. to the past, yeah. yeah, because the history really has a lot of bearing on today. Just like mm. you were saying, like all these things, I it's didn't realize they connected. Totally connected. It's totally. It's so fascinating the way that it connects to, and the implications of that for whatever future we hope to have, um, in my mind. Anyway, um, so this ballad, yeah, it's it's just gorgeous. Sounds it's like just, the resolution. If like it is. the drums it, and the well, actually, it's 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 part of the resolution. It's oh. it's so it, it's this cathartic part where you you might you might shed tears. You know, mm-hmm. people do. Mm-hmm. Um, people in the band sometimes shed tears from their own playing and their own singing. Oftentimes, you know, and. But see, then after that, in almost all cases, one exception being um, the song um, Morning Dew, um, which is actually a cover, but no one really knows the original. Most people know it as a Grateful Dead song, but it was a song written about like walking out in a post-nuclear war apocalypse. So it's like, but it's, this, but it's a very slow and mournful song and they will sometimes close the second set with that so it's a, but it's a very so that's like emotional catharsis post ballad going all the way to the end that's not it's not ab, like that is 
a proper ritual. You know what I mean? But that's not the norm. Usually after the ballad, you end with like 15 minutes of dancing. There's There will be a fast-paced, joyous, oftentimes it's a cover of an old rock and roll song. Um, you know, you'll get like, a, you know, Not Fade Away, which I think was like a Buddy Holly song. Um, you know, something like that where you 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 have just poured, you feel like you poured your soul out. Like it just, you you know, you had all this emotion and then you celebrate. And then you you dance and everybody's smiling and clapping and jumping up and down. And it's and it's very communal. You know, by this point, we've long since passed the point where everyone there is one. You know what I mean? Long since gone past that that level. Everyone is is in this together. Everyone's experiencing the same thing. You know, you are even if you are not high by this point, you are unless you are like the most resistant person ever, you are carried along. You are, you are being taken by the force of this thing. And so you're probably going to dance out. And then, you know, you, you could argue about whether the end of the second set or the end of the encore is the true ending to the ritual. But I, I would argue that it's the end of the second set is the, the ritual has concluded. They're going to come back and play an awesome encore that it will often involve one slow song and a fast song. Um, but that's really the coda. Like that's like the, that's the, the, the send off, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. they're, they're saying goodbye to you with that. I mean, that's what an encore is, you know, um, the ritual really is over at the end of that second set. And so you've gone through, you know, and at this point, like I said, you're, you, you're probably getting done with your peak by this point, you know, you're, you're heading into the plateau and, um, you can go on and celebrate for the rest of the night. You know, you're probably not tired enough to go to bed at that point. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but, this, but that's the ritual. And you come away, I mean, it's it's a, Phil Lesh said it in the documentary reference earlier. He's like, yeah, we used to say that every place we played was church. And um, Jonathan, you know Jonathan from here, mm-hmm. he, uh, he, he came with us and he was, I want to be very clear, as I was clear on my podcast, that he was not engaged in any illegal activity whatsoever. Um, I think he had a drink maybe, which is legal. Um, but even without the psychedelic substances, having experienced and encountered this ritual, his Facebook post the next day, without any help from me or without, I don't know that he had seen that part of the documentary was, there's a lot worse places to go to church. And so that's what this becomes. And like I said, you know, the way Phil said is that every place we played, it became church. And to me, as someone who grew up going to church mm-hmm. and for much of that time until I got older, um, did get something spiritual out of it, you know, um, certainly not in the, in a way that I would consider mature, but I do have a religious component to myself because of that, you know, and nothing in my adult post-Christian life that I have ever experienced remotely touches upon the religious quality that this, it's, it is, I wouldn't even say, you know, spiritual, but not religious. No, no, no. It's religious. It is religious. It is a service. It is a liturgy. You know, it is, I mean, and that's what liturgy is. I mean, that's what the the liturgy of the Catholic Church has always, that's what a mass is. It's just like a Grateful Dead show. It is structured to have a certain rhythm that where images, smells, and sounds evoke certain things over a set period of time. That is the purpose of a mass. 
And that's what this is like. It does the same thing, only in my mind, in a much more elaborate, much more meaningful way. Um, yeah. But it's the same thing. And what what are the Ten Commandments, the Five Pillars, the oh, Noble yeah, Truths? Yeah. What is it? Is it like love? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I think that's what they would say. I mean, one one thing that Deadheads often say is the um, the the lyric from Uncle John's band is. Um, is that the one that's like, come here? Yes. Oh, yes. my mom and my uncle sing that one. Yes. They say, whoa, oh, what I want to know is, um, are you kind? Ah. You know, so that's and often- where does the time yes, go? Yes, exactly. So one of those lines is, um, what I want to know is, are you kind? Ah. Uh, um, and so that is often cited by Deadhead specifically as kind of the- you know, um, like, a, you know, Alistair Crowley fans say, you know, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. For Grateful Dead fans, it's more like, what I want to know is, are you kind, is the whole of the law. That's that's what they say. I think that's gym. a simplification. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't preach that. I mean, I love kindness. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I, I think that, I don't think that the religious experience or the spiritual um, life that exists within this just boils down to love and kindness. Um, in, in one way, I guess it does, but I, I think that that's almost cheapening it to, to just say that. I really do. It's more than that. Well, it said um, kind minds in a couple different places at Jerry Jam. And I was like, well, I really like, I want to, I like how that feels on oh, me. Oh, yeah, no. And I think it's important, especially from a, if we're going to talk to other people about these experiences and bring other people in, that it is about the kindness. And we, do, we need a much more kind world. We need a much more loving world, you know? So mm-hmm. I don't, I, I'm not saying that to poo poo those things in any way, you know? But I, I do think on the, Flip side of that, when you say to people that like the message of the Grateful Dead is love and kindness, they're like, yeah, okay, hippie bullshit. You mm-hmm. know, it's really easy to dismiss it when you just boil it down to that. Um, I, I want to know why when we're dismissing something, we say the word hippie. Well, I do too, because I've always liked hippie culture. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't use that expression at all. You know, I mean, um, while I don't, well, I often will argue with people who say that I am a hippie um, on various grounds. Um, I very much identify with hippie culture, and I do not see it as a negative thing. Um, this is another one of those things that my political um, friends listening to this are going to be like, it's a heretical son of a bitch, um, <laughs> liking hippies, you know, because socialists love to hate hippies, too, um, for some legitimate reasons, I guess. But yeah. Well, I actually, I grabbed this earlier when we were talking about something else, and it's this list I got from the Women's Visionary Council mm-hmm. in, uh, at Psychedelic Science, and it's hippie contributions to U.S. culture. Oh, yeah. Ideas invented by or repopularized by hippies. Let me just read you a couple of them. Alternative energy and medicine and news, mm-hmm. anti-nuclear movement, yep. Asian foods, like mm-hmm. miso, tofu, tempeh, uh, beads, Craft beer making, body hair, breastfeeding, brewer's yeast, uh, (laughs) carrot cake, (laughs) cheese making, chopsticks, climate change recognition, Mm -hmm. free love, dance concerts, domes, gray water systems, granola, herbal medicine, hitchhiking, home birth, home fermentations, home funerals, homeschooling, home everything, humanure. You know what that is? No. It's like when you process human waste and in a way that makes it usable for, for like soil. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Incense, internet, importance of indigenous cultures, marijuana, meditation, natural childbirth, organic farming. Oh, I must have skipped kombucha. Raw <laughs> foods, tie-dye, <laughs> veganism, vegetarianism, 
wild crafting, whole grains, yogurt, Tai Chi, women's movement. I mean, it's pretty substantial, the oh, contributions made from... And, yeah, and like I said earlier, I, I would even go in a different direction than some of those and say like modern computing, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the entire internet. Oh, the you internet know? Like, is on here. Oh, is it? Oh, good. good. Yeah. I didn't read the whole list. Yeah, you wouldn't have. Yeah, you know, see, internet right before jam bands. Oh, yeah. There's so language. much that, that we, a part of our daily lives today that would not be here if it weren't for hippie, if not hit, you know, cause it's like the guys at, at, and I, and I do say guys, cause it was guys, um, at Stanford and MIT, it was a little, they were like post hippie, you know what I mean? They weren't really hippies, but without the hippie culture that informed them, like none of this, none of this comes into being none of it. And, and if we can just sort of like wrap up or wrap everything together on this mm-hmm. point, I, I feel as though, there are all these different camps and different dogmas and codes to adhere to. And th- this person that I was talking to today, we were saying he brought up um, the uh, Goenka, the Vipassana um, guy. He said, uh, you, you don't dig multiple wells for your water. You dig one well, like don't pick and choose what, what pr- spiritual practices or meditation practices that you practice. But I really, I think that, we have to experience many different ways of seeing and finding our, our ultimate truth and our Absolutely. processing our experiences. So I, I would just like to close with an intention mm-hmm. for this podcast to be an exploration of all different ways of relating to the natural environment, to our individual selves and our community immediately around us, as well as <clears throat> the larger civilization and ecosystem that humans are present in and hopefully can get back to a more harmonious state with that. That would be, if I could do something like that, if if everyone involved with this could be a part in, um, in the, the propagation of, of old and new ideas and come together for, uh, for survival. Nothing else? Yeah. For love and kindness. of life. Um, because that is a concern right now. It is a concern. You know, and um, if I could just add on to one of the things you said, you mentioned like, you know, going back to a sort of harmony is that, and this is a, kind of a newer way of thinking that has been introduced to me in a lot of ways, actually, through like communism, really, is to say that we'll, we, we can't go back, but we can go forward. And I truly believe, and this is where, you know, the communists will laugh at me, but I truly believe that the only way that we are going to go forward, the only way that we are going to survive, like, I think we are either going to uh, metamorphose or die. You know, we're going to go extinct or we are going to begin something completely different. But if we live the way that we live and the structure of our life and existence on this planet is not going to be like anything we see today. And it's probably also not going to be like anything we've seen in the distant past either. Mm -hmm. We're not going back to tribes, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not going back to no technology and just living on the earth. I mean, if, if it comes down to that, we will probably die Mm -hmm. um, because the damage that we have done Mm -hmm. to the ecosystem is going to require very advanced technology to repair in a way that any animal can probably live here. Um, so we can't we can't go back, but I, I think that the only way we have a chance of going forward is going to lo- it's going to exist within um, some of what we're talking about. And I don't have a prescription, unfortunately, 
Um, but I can say that, you know, yes, you know, these, these things that we are talking about are banned and we cannot advocate that you do them. And people to this day are still punished very in very draconian, um, horrific, barbaric ways for participating in them. But, you know, like I said, the, the people who have kept this culture going and have kept the supply chain of these sacred substances going, you know, who did so at great risk to their lives and to their loved ones, they did it not for money, and certainly not for fame and glory, because we don't know who most of them are, um, although I'm still jealous that you got to hang out with the Randalls. But, um, you know, most of these people are anonymous, they, and they will never be known, but they did it because it was the in, in service of the divine. And if we don't see it that way, um, then, then we fail, then we may, we may die. Um, I would look at this as as a way to serve humanity and and serve the divine and bring the two back together, because um, otherwise we don't have a chance. I think that we should dedicate this episode to the those affected and the casualties of the war on consciousness. Oh hell yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for the folks who put themselves on the line for for climate activism and social justice and um, cognitive and mental sovereignty mm-hmm. and agency. Hell yeah. That's the God. That's the goddess work. Yes. You know who you are. Yes. And uh, we're all revolutionary. Um, this is all chapter 12 of the Bhagavad Gita. It's just the universe churning in the mouth of God and death and rebirth over and over. And this is really the, the blink of an eye if even. Yeah, it is. But we're blessed to, to have um, these uh, receivers to experience it exactly. and, and talk yeah. about it. Hell yeah. Oh, well, um, how can we find you on the internet? Oh, so uh, if anybody's looking for me, uh, wizardofmanadnock.com or Wizard of Manadnock on Facebook, I'll be honest that lately it's, it's a little difficult to try to have content in like 27 different places. So I have been posting more on Facebook than the actual blog. Um, I'm trying to change that, but if you really want me to hear from me on like a daily or every other day basis, go find Wizard of Manadnock on Facebook. Um, The podcast itself, the Wizard of Manadnock Radio Hour, um, uh, you know, Leah will spell it for you in the um, in the notes so that you know what Manadnock spells like if you are not from New Hampshire <laughs> or New England. Um, but it's the only one out there. You can find it on, you know, iTunes, whatever podcast app you use. It is on it. There is only one Wizard of Manadnock. So if you put that in, you should find it right away. Um, I put out an episode a month or so, and I like to think that they are entertaining. So I would love to have you along for the ride. They are entertaining. Check it out. Thank you for joining us oh, today, Thank you very Chris. much for having me. Hope you enjoyed that interview with the Wizard of Manadnock. I really loved this talk, and not even a week after, I found myself rather incidentally present at a Dark Star Orchestra show outside uh, on the docks in Portland, Maine. What a surprise. I was um, in transit down from a weekend in Maine, went to see uh, Monhegan Island with some friends and do other Maine activities. And then on the way back, staying the night in Portland, ironically, had someone I wanted to see, and they invited me to a Dark Star Orchestra concert. Well, that's how you lay the seeds for the manifestation of what you want, I tell you. 
put it out there. So it came back around and um, I had a great time. I had an awesome time. I'm not religious about this, but it was fun. I would do it again. It felt really good. Um, I had some thoughts. Set and setting are part of the ritual, as much so in any psychedelic experience. But um, the set being that I was feeling really relaxed and ready for my trip to California and excited to be in good company, had been in great company all week, um, was feeling really great in my setting, surrounded by people laughing and uh, being friendly to each other. And although there were some rather uh, strict rules on what could be brought in, uh, namely no hula hoops. So I actually had to uh, not bring my hula hoop in. And that was kind of sad. Um, also no handbags. So you had to buy a $5 plastic bag to put your things in. Okay. Um, but the people around me influenced me a lot in the show as did the the music, the ambiance, the weather, the sky, so beautiful, all my surroundings. And it made me think about the way that um, set and setting influences any experience for us. And that maybe if we make a conclusion about something, uh, being good or bad, that it had something to do with our set and setting at the time of observing it. I don't know. Uh, a few other thoughts I had were um, about the show ends and then distilling that back into our life, right? On the way out, I found myself like kicking water bottles and other trash, uh, just everyone not not stampeding toward the exit, but the mindfulness of our neighbors and the friendly kind vibes were just less, less so than when we were standing in place watching the show. Everyone was focused on this thing. We're moving, you know, okay, we're moving, we're going out. Now I'm hungry, I'm this, I have these needs. And then, um, and then consequently, people weren't as mindful of the those around them. And I'm often wondering about how to um, how to keep the feeling and what I can do to to keep it in my own behavior. I guess that's where we have to start, right? So I hope this uh, episode was enjoyable to you. I hope you tune in again, hoping to talk about some social justice stuff soon, and uh, also talk about. Um, my experiences out here on the West Coast at Oregon Eclipse Festival, at Burning Man, and at a women's gathering um, where I'm doing speaking and other offerings. Just looking forward to uh, bringing that to you and to hear about the experiences that I have there. Until then, don't forget, love will see you through.